You're listening to the podcast of Village Church in Burbank, California. To learn more about Village Church, visit our website at villagechurchburbank.org. We hope you enjoy today's message. All right, so we're in a series that we've started uh, with this new year. It's a six-part series, untitled, and it's just on the nature of faith. What is faith? How does it work? What are misconceptions about faith that can steer us off track? That's kind of what we're diving into for these six weeks. It's a six-part sermon. Today will be part three. And if if you've not been able to join us for either of the first two weeks... I want you to know, first of all, you're totally going to understand everything that I say today. These, these sermons are all uh, self-contained, and, and so you should be able to get everything I say. And yet, at the same time, if you have missed one of the sermons or both of them, I really want to encourage you to go back uh, and listen to those sermons, whether on our website or on our podcast. And, uh, and that will give you a fuller context of what I'm wanting to communicate through this series. The title of this particular sermon is very simply, Visible Faith. And, uh, and we're going to look at our text here in Mark chapter 2. This is one of my favorite stories in the Gospels. So many, if not all of my favorite stories in the Bible come out of the Gospels. I, I'm just a Gospel guy. I love, I stay in the Gospels. I, of course, I venture off everywhere else in the, in the Scriptures as well, but I stay rooted in the Gospels. And, uh, and so we're going to look at one of my favorite stories. This one really just captures my imagination. There's so many rich things to see here. So let's look at Mark 2, beginning in verse 1. We're going to look at just the first five verses, then we'll pray and, and jump right into it. When Jesus returned to Capernaum after some days, It was reported that he was at home. So many gathered around that there was no longer room for them, not even in front of the door, and he was speaking the word to them. Then some people came, bringing to him a paralyzed man, carried by four of them. And when they could not bring him to Jesus because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And after having dug through it, they let down the mat on which the paralytic lay. Watch this. When Jesus saw their faith, he saw their faith. He said to the paralytic, child, your sins are forgiven. And of course, he goes on to heal the man. But the key phrase there, when Jesus saw their faith. Let's pause and pray. God, I'm so grateful for this precious opportunity. And I'm thankful for every person here. And I offer my efforts this morning to you. I put my efforts in your hands. And I pray that you do something remarkable, supernatural. May we receive divine communication from you, from your mouth. Despite my limitations, Lord, this moment really hinges upon your involvement. And we welcome you right now as best we know how. Set aside everything else. And we pledge this moment to you and invite you to speak to the very core of our being. 
may we humbly receive whatever you might speak to us today. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, last week, I gave a critique of a particular model of faith that I believe is most popular among American evangelicals today. It's this model of faith as if faith is being psychologically certain. That, for example, if I'm praying for something, let's say I'm praying for the rain to stop, which may or may not be the case. (laughs) That the more I'm praying for something, many people have the idea that the more certain I am and the more convinced I am it's going to happen, therefore the less doubt I have, Therefore, the more, quote-unquote, faith I have. And according to a certain reading of passages like James 1, verses 6 through 8, which is what we looked at last week, we go further sometimes and we think, well, the more certain I am and therefore the more faith I am, the more likely I am to receive the outcome that I'm praying for. That's what we really focused on last week. I, I talked about how I believe it's a very unbiblical and actually very unhealthy, potentially destructive model of faith, and yet I believe it is also the most common model of faith that American evangelicals have. And it really turns us into the cowardly lion and the wizard of Oz, where we're trying to talk ourselves into something and convince ourselves of something. I do believe, I do believe, I do, I do, I do believe. And I used last week a particular image to represent this concept of faith that hopefully was helpful for you. And it's the image of a faithometer, and I want to once again resurrect the faithometer uh, for you. So the faithometer, many people have a faithometer theology, and the idea that we all have something like this. And so uh, the more convinced I am, the more certain I am, the more that faithometer gets cranked up, and, and man, I'd like to get it all the way into the green zone eventually if I can. But the less convinced, the less I can talk myself into it, the more doubt I have, the less quote-unquote faith I have, therefore... Uh, the needle doesn't really move very much at all. Um, and with this particular version of the faithometer, I've kind of made some tweaks here for today. Uh, you know, maybe one version of it is that there are particular zones. So like, you know, if I can only crank up my faithometer a little bit, if I can only make myself a little bit certain, well, at least I'm in the salvation zone. You know, at least, at least I'm saved. But if I can crank up that faithometer even more and, and, and really make myself certain, that's when I get into the blessing zone. That's like when you start praying and you start getting the best parking spots and like the best deals at Target and stuff like that. But if I can really crank up that faith on or get into the green zone, now I'm in the healing zone, you know. And boy, if I can get it all the way to 100%, that's when you start winning the lottery and things like that. So it's kind of a, uh, I'm kind of giving you admittedly a, a caricature version of this, but I think it does accurately convey the way many people understand faith and how it works. Faith is being certain, it's being convinced, talking yourself into it and not doubting at all because doubt and faith are seen as enemies of one another rather than, I believe authentically, they are partners with one another. I think our journey through doubt leads to stronger faith. Um, And that's all what we've talked about these last two weeks. Well, see, if that is your model of how faith works, if you have a faithometer theology then now that becomes the lens through which you start interpreting certain passages of Scripture. So, for example, when Jesus tells the blind man, according to your faith, be it unto you, 
the way that you hear that, the way you read Jesus there is you read him saying, now listen, Mr. Blind Man, if you can just convince yourself enough and talk yourself into the idea that I'm going to heal you, well, then I'll heal you. But if you can't convince yourself enough, if you can't talk yourself into it enough, uh, then I'm not going to heal you. And I, I think there are so many problems with that idea, with that interpretation. But one of the things I want to just bring out real quickly is this, and, and this is very important. Faithometer theology always blames the victim. If you would have just had enough faith, then you would be healed. Or you wouldn't be in that wheelchair. Or you wouldn't be poor. Or your child wouldn't have died. And I'm telling you, I've seen this model of faith absolutely devastate people and drive them into despair. But it's so common. One of the reasons why I think this theology is so popular in the Western world is because it fits very neatly with how we have learned to understand how our relationship with God works. Ever since at least the Protestant Reformation, and just stick with me for a moment, but ever since a few hundred years ago, the primary way that we in the West have learned to see salvation and faith and things like that is we tend to see these things through a courtroom analogy, a court of law context, a legal context. So that we see God as he's, he's like the judge with the gavel and the long white wig, and we are the guilty defendants. And the goal is we want to be acquitted, we want to stay acquitted, all right? That's kind of the primary framework that we have at least absorbed and inherited that's formed the way we think about things like salvation and faith. So the idea, if you, if you take this faithometer theology and put it into that court of law context, it works like this. God is the judge, and he's looking at your faithometer, and so our goal as the guilty defendant is we want to impress the judge by cranking up that faithometer, at least get it enough into that salvation zone. And so when this is the way we tend to understand it, we tend to start seeing salvation as a kind of prisoner release program. You had enough faith to get released. The trouble is, because we're not told, what are the terms of this release? Like you got released, you're on probation or whatever, but what are the terms? Which is to say this, uh, what exactly am I supposed to be believing and how strongly am I supposed to believe these things? You know, 51%, is that enough? Or 65 or 80% or maybe even 100%? What's, what's the terms? Um, am I believing the right things and am I, am I believing the right thing strongly enough? I once had someone come to me a few years ago they were very distraught, and they were also very sincere, and they said, Ryan, listen, I, there, there are things in Christianity I totally believe. I am 100% confident. I believe Jesus is the sinless Lamb of God, God's very Son, the Messiah of Israel and the Savior of the world. And I believe Jesus died for my sins, made atonement for my sins, and on the third day physically rose from the dead. I believe these things, and yet, you know, there are particular stories in the Bible, like in the Old Testament. There, there's a story here and there. And of course, it's all God's inspired word. It's there to teach us and instruct us and correct us. It's useful. It's Holy Scripture. But I'm not sure, am I supposed to see this? Am I supposed to take this as 
literal? Like, is the author meaning for me to see this as a historical, literal reality? I'm not sure. I'm not confident about that. And if I'm wrong on that, like, am I still in this thing? Am I still saved? You see, that's the kind of tormenting thinking I'm talking about. And with faithometer theology, so much is at stake. And so it causes a lot of uh, anxiety for people. Am I believing wrong things? Am I believing the right things strong enough? What if I have the wrong view of the end times? What if I have the wrong view of Genesis 1 and 2? What if I have the wrong view of predestination and divine foreknowledge? What if I have the wrong view on the nature of hell? Or I'm just not confident enough in the traditional view of hell? All of these, listen, they're all important issues. They're all fascinating to talk about. They all affect our lives in various ways. But with faithometer theology, you may be betting the house on every single one of them. And the health of your child or even your eternal salvation may be hanging in the balance. It's all part of the faithometer prisoner release program. And to make things just a little more fun, there are plenty of heavenly probation officers running around in various churches, and they can tell you what the terms are. Somehow they know, and they'd be glad to inspect your life and tell you whether or not you make the grade. Over the years, I've been kicked out of the Faithometer Prisoner Release Program, at least in the minds of a few people, for a number of infractions, actually. Wrong view of Genesis 1, out. Wrong view of the end times, out. I had a guy one time, kid you not, we, he was in my office. He wasn't part of our church. He wanted, he wanted, we had a Christian school there in Louisiana, and he wanted to, um, he wanted to put on this, this conference for our students at the school on creation science. And I'm, I'm a creationist, okay, obviously. I believe God created the heavens and the earth and everything. And yet, over the centuries, Christians have had a wide range of different understandings and interpretations and views on, on how all of that plays out. And, and this guy had a very rigid, closed-minded, you know, system that he wanted to present to the school. And I just told him as graciously and tactfully as I can, listen, this is, I don't think this is something we're going to be interested in. Um, I, I, I don't think this is going to sustain our children through their first biology class as a college freshman. I didn't say that. That's what I was thinking. I was kind to him. But I'm going to tell you, at the end of that conversation, he wasn't even sure I was saved because I disagreed with him on the age of the earth. Out. That's what I'm talking about. And you see, for some of these probation officers, man, the test you have to pass is pretty strenuous. And you've got to be pretty much 100% confident on all of these things or, or maybe your probation is at risk. And this view is so widespread. Sometimes it's more explicit. Sometimes it's more implicit. But it's so prevalent out there, and it's misguided, and it's damaging. And one of the things I want you to see about it is it's actually self-absorbed. It encourages a person to just look within themselves. Am I believing the right things? Am I believing them strong enough? Am I certain enough? Am I convinced enough? Maybe I need to crank up my faithometer. I do believe, I do believe, I do, I do, I do believe. And it's so self-absorbed. We, we talk about it being all about Jesus. It's all about God. With faithometer theology, it's all about me and my ability to save my own skin through psychological gimmickry. I'll take it even further. I see it even as uh, a kind of idolatry. 
Because instead of getting my worth, my value, my significance, my identity, my security, by trusting in God's mercy as revealed in Jesus Christ, I'm getting my sense of well-being and identity and security from how good I am at cranking up the faithometer and convincing myself that I'm right. The biblical concept of faith has nothing to do with that kind of magical thinking. The biblical concept of faith has nothing to do with that kind of psychological gimmickry. What have I said these last two weeks? If you want to know what biblical faith is, look at marriage. Biblical faith is relational covenantal trust. The ideal relationship God wants with his people is not the relationship between a judge and a defendant. Yes, there's that analogy in Romans used to make a particular point. But all throughout Scripture, the primary metaphor that is used to describe the kind of relationship God wants with his people is that between a husband and a wife. It's a marriage. And so if you want to know what faith is and how it functions, don't look at the cowardly lion in the Wizard of Oz. Think of a bride and a groom looking into one another's eyes saying their wedding vows. When Carrie and I did that nearly 18 years ago, what we were doing is we were saying, I pledge myself to you. It's not, about, it's not self-absorbed. It's others-oriented. I'm pledging myself to you. I'm pledging to walk in a way in which I'm trusting you, and I'm pledging to live my life in a trajectory where I'm walking trustworthily before you. It's an other-oriented thing. And what Carrie and I need to understand, just like every married couple, and by the way, this also applies to deep friendship as well, is that the blessedness of our relationship is directly proportionate to how well we trust one another and how trustworthy we are before one another. That's, that's, that's what Jesus is getting at, I think, when he tells the blind man, according to your faith, be it unto you. According to your trust, be it unto you. In the Gospels, anytime you see Jesus use the word faith, I think it may be a good idea to try substituting the word trust. It won't change the meaning. It may help you fill out and understand the meaning better. Biblical faith is covenantal trust, relational covenant. And that brings me to the main point of this sermon. It's this. The evidence that we're exercising covenantal faith is not found by looking within our own head, looking for a faith, some non-existent faithometer. The evidence that we're exercising covenantal faith is that we are, in fact, living out that faith. That's why it's always visible. Covenantal faith is always visible and observable. In that story we looked at at the beginning, Jesus is in Capernaum, and he's in this house packed like sardines with people. There are people actually overflowing on the exterior of the house. And, and yet here's these four guys who have a friend, he's paralyzed, and they're desperate to get him to Jesus because they trust Jesus' character and capability. And they say, if we can just get him to Jesus somehow, we know what Jesus will do. And so they take this man somehow or another and lift him up on top of his house and get on the roof of his house, cut a hole in the roof, Dave Bethany. <laughs> cut a hole in the roof. That'll drive up some business, man. We need some people putting this into practice. And let their friend down to Jesus. And it says when Jesus saw their faith, it was visible. It was observable. Faith is an action term. That's why James says in James 2, faith without works is dead. It's non-existent. 
It's useless. It has the connotation actually of meaning it's not real faith at all. You're tricking yourself if you talk yourself into thinking you believe in something, but it doesn't actually impact your behavior. Real faith, genuine faith, is visible. If I can't see it, it ain't real. If I can't see it, it doesn't exist. So back to the marriage analogy, because I think this is the, the most helpful paradigm for us to understand these things. How do I know I'm exercising covenantal faith in a marriage? It's not rocket science. As a husband, I pledge to my wife, I'm pledging to love you, support you, cherish you, and honor you in sickness and in health, for richer, for poor, for better, for worse, good times and bad, till death do us part. So the question is, am I living that way? Am I moving in that direction? Am I living in that direction? And if I am, I'm exercising covenantal faith. But if I'm not, it doesn't matter how convinced I am or certain I am that I am a good husband. If I'm not living in that trajectory, I'm not exercising covenantal faith. In fact, notice this, whenever a spouse all of a sudden gets self-absorbed in their own minds and and just searches within themselves asking questions like, how certain am I of this marriage? How much do I feel towards this person? What kind of feeling of love towards my spouse do I have on this day? That's a sign that maybe things are in trouble. Because when you say, I do at the altar, you're pledging your life to move in a certain direction. Feelings are not to walk in a certain direction and reframe your existence in a certain way. And everything else, thoughts, feelings, emotions, in one sense, are now irrelevant. Now, obviously, clearly, it's good to have those things on board as well. We want our feelings and emotions involved. But whether those emotions are there or not, that that is not what determines whether you're living in covenantal faith towards your spouse. What determines whether you're exercising covenantal faith is simply, are you moving in a certain direction? Are you living in a certain way towards them? And the evidence for that is always visible. And the best way to answer that question, maybe, is to not just look within yourself, because we have a tremendous ability to delude ourselves but to go to your spouse or to go to a best friend, somebody who knows you, and just ask them, I'm giving you permission to speak into my life. What do you see? What's, what trajectory do you observe in my life and my relationship towards my spouse? What do you see? Do you, do you see someone who's being a supportive husband or a faithful wife? Am I living out my covenantal vows towards my spouse. It's the same thing with our walk with God. To know the extent of your faith, don't go searching within the labyrinth of your own mind looking for some non-existent faithometer because it's not there. Maybe go to someone else, someone who's close, your spouse maybe, but somebody who knows you well enough, has known you long enough, and ask them, what do you see? What trajectory do you see? Is my life moving in the, king, in the direction of the kingdom? Because listen, it's not about where you are. It's about what direction you're moving. And for some of you, that's going to take pressure off of you. It's never about where you are right now. It's about what trajectory are you on. And by the way, everybody's got a different starting point, which is why we have to give each other grace and mercy in our spiritual journeys. But you go to that person and say, when you look at the trajectory of my life, Do do you see someone who is increasingly growing in their love for God and in their love for others? Or do you see someone in me who is, is, that their love's growing cold? 
When you view my life, do you see someone who increasingly is finding all my worth and value and significance and identity solely from Christ? Or am I getting my life worth and value and identity from my car or my possessions or my abilities or my achievements or the opinions of others or my appearance or, or what have you? And see, when people are close enough to you, they'll know that. And if you will give them permission to speak into your life, which we all should have somebody who has that permission, now they can tell you. And it's not necessarily an indicting thing. It's just an honesty thing. And sometimes it's, a, it's an affirming thing. Because I don't know about you, there are times in my walk with the Lord where I get really down on myself. I'm like, I'm a terrible Christian. I'm horrible. And I might have a close friend who could see it from a different angle and say, well, actually, Ryan, let me show you where I see some growth. So actually, I, I may have been blind to that the whole time. Faith is always, always visible. But it's not always visible in the same way for every person. And we've got to avoid that. See, these... Um, these probation officers have a very clear, ironclad profile of this is what a faithful person looks like. So in their minds, if you're not involved in the ministries I'm involved in, if you don't share the same convictions I have, if you're not sacrificial in the same way that I am, you're not being faithful. And we've got to reject that way of thinking, that cookie-cutter mentality. Only the people that you've invited in on your life can know the visible difference it's making on the whole. Let me conclude with this. I know I've given you a lot to consider. One of the reasons why I believe faithometer theology is so popular is because it allows us to avoid asking all of those tough questions and having those kinds of conversations. Because now I can just look within myself and do the line of the Wizard of Oz thing. I do believe, I do believe, I do, I do, I do believe. And I can just convince myself and make myself certain everything's good. So now it actually doesn't even matter how I live my life in certain ways. I can just ignore that. I can block that out. To go back to the marriage thing, it's like a delusional husband who tells himself, I love my wife, I am a faithful, good husband. But he's never there for her. He doesn't support her. They never initiate any activities together. He just treats her like a house pet. He just treats her like a maid. And yet the whole time he's got himself convinced, I'm a good husband, I'm faithful, I love my wife, because he's got this internal feeling or something. You're deluded. You're absolutely delusional. If you want to know whether or not you're a good, faithful husband, don't go looking within your own head because your head's messed up. Wives, don't say amen. Um, but go to someone who knows you, who's close to you, who loves you, who shares your values, and maybe they have a healthy model of what a good husband looks like, and ask them. You know, it's very easy for us to convince ourselves and make ourselves certain, oh, I have such a huge love for Jesus, da-da-da-da-da. And yet, if there's nothing in our life that's impacted by it, if it's not being reflected increasingly in any way, we're delusional. And it falls under what James says, faith that isn't visible, it's not genuine faith. The most important question is not one that's answered by manipulating something in my head. The most important question is lived out this way. What does it look like for me today, right now, to manifest the terms of my covenant, my relationship with Jesus Christ? What does it look like right here, right now, in this moment? Am I doing the I do right now? And that's not an intellectual question, it's an action question. Is my faith visible? And so I want to encourage every single one of you, whether you're here in this room or you're listening by some other means, I want to encourage you sometime perhaps in the next 
few days or weeks. Find someone who you know loves you, has your best interest at heart, someone you can trust, someone who shares your values, and they're close enough to you that you can say, I'm giving you permission to speak into my life. What do you see? Do you see someone who is growing in Christ-like character? It could be your spouse. It could be your best friend. But somebody who knows how you spend your money. Someone who knows how you spend your time. Someone who has a sense of what motivates you and drives you in your life. The things you talk about all the time. The things you get excited about. The things you're passionate about. Somebody who knows that much about you. Ask them, is my faith visible? Where is my faith visible? Is it growing in its visibility? Or does something need to change? And listen, if something needs to change, remember it's not a matter of just saying, okay, on your mark, get set, go. I'm going to try harder. No, it's, again, it's a matter of, once again, surrendering to the Lordship of Christ and saying, Lord, transform me from the inside out. Send your spirit. Give me your heart. Fill me with your power and rekindle that flame of love once again so that I might live out my covenant vows to you with true fidelity. Understand this thou these things. Thank you for listening to today's message. To learn more about Village Church, visit our website at villagechurchburbank.org.